This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research, distributed by Inside HPC. Searching for scalability in China. And tracking criminals in Canada. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening to This Week in HPC. I'm Addison Snell, and that's Michael Feldman. We're with Intersect 360 Research. And This Week in HPC, Michael, some interesting stories coming out. We're talking about supercomputing at the high end a lot. And, uh, you know, we've looked at this Tianhe system in China and some of the other Chinese investments here recently. But we're now seeing some critiques that these systems are largely going unused. Yeah, and these critiques are, are uh, originating in China itself of people that uh, some of the users there, especially at the Chinese Academy of Science and some of the other or, uh, research organizations, they're, they're being a little self-critical about how sort of uh, unequipped they are to use all this power they've bought. It seems like they've the Chinese have gotten a little bit ahead of uh, on the hardware, and they're falling behind on the uh, the software and other parts of the infrastructure that make these computers really useful. Well, uh, you know, we're dealing with a couple of complicated dynamics here. You're not only going to a new level of scale, but also new architectural models. Where uh, Tianhe is one of the new supercomputers that relies predominantly on accelerators for those peak ratings. You've right. got all these Intel Xeon Phi's, and is it reasonable to expect that there's a time lag in between putting in that many Xeon Phi processors and, and then catching up with a, a large number of applications that can effectively scale across those new processors up to that level? Well, certainly up to that level. I mean, TNA2 is, is what is 34 uh, petaflops, so it's, it would be hard to get a single application up to that level. But part of the critique is they're not even using the capacity of those computers. In other words, they're not even cutting up the computers into little pieces and using uh, a lot of smaller applications. I think. Uh, yeah, why not have 68 half petaflop partitions that people can use? Right. So the the software is, is lacking to such an extent that there's just not enough applications that are able to run on those systems. They just have too much system, which is which is an unusual thing in HPC. Even even the more exotic systems in the U.S., you can find somebody out there that has written an application to use that, and usually there's a there's a waiting list for, for these computers. So in uh, in this case, it seems like not always. I think uh, there were some figures it was 30-some percent utilization they were averaging in some cases for this large system. Well, in particular, in the U.S., we see any number of partnership programs to link national labs to academic or industrial research, uh, whether they're through the Department of Energy or the Council on Competitiveness. Now, those programs can always be improved, but at least they exist, and there are mechanisms wherein uh, you can get industrial or academic sharing of these national lab resources when these are available. I don't know of how that works in China and what the bureaucracy is like in terms of getting access to these systems. Right. I think that was part of the criticism. The bureaucracy to organize such things are not in place yet, which is which is understandable. I mean, China, for all the supercomputers it's bought, is, is relatively new to the, the supercomputing world. So it's got whatever 60-some uh, of these systems on the top 500, but there's only a few organizations that I think are taking advantage of it, and it doesn't sound like there's there's really uh, 
effective governance of, of, of the process there at, at this point. Well, furthermore, you know, while you look at China catching up on the government side in terms of investment for supercomputing, I think on average from the in industrial side, they're significantly behind. If you look at the percentage of uh, industrial members, commercial types of organizations that are really leveraging high-performance computing, you can point to a few noteworthy ones in China. But uh, across the rest of the world, in particular in the U.S. and Europe, it's just going to be a higher proportion of people who are able to line up and, and really take advantage of those kinds of resources. There might be a paucity of other types of organizations that can really line up for that in China. Yeah, I think that, that is the case. Uh, the, the other aspect to this is even there's, there's some systems out there. And, and one in particular we've talked about, Tianhe One, the, the original system, that are just not being used at all. They got mothballed because of, of of various things. I think they wanted to transfer that system to another organization, but it was sort of a missed handoff. So there's this large system. Tianhe One was a, a former number one system just a few years ago, and it's basically mothballed now, and it's been unused since uh, I guess 2013. So there's there's that sort of you know idle waste going on as well. I think there's two elements of surprise here. One is that there's that much idle capacity on these Chinese supercomputers. The other is, why are they letting this story out? I mean, China is notorious for controlling the, the media, or especially when it comes to government criticism. So, you know, why are we suddenly looking at this story saying that the, the Chinese government may have been misguided in some of its high-end supercomputing investment? Yeah, that's a good question. Although I think in the past five years, I think we've seen stories like this come out. I think there's different factions there that are that are looking basically the same as here. They're looking for funding, so this might be part of a of a, of a plan to give to give voice to certain certain parts, like the Chinese Academy of Sciences is supported by the government as well. That's the government too, and they are they're looking for more funding for for their software. Uh, work as well, and, and maybe that's part of it. But yeah, it's it's definitely a much more open uh, open presentation than we've seen from uh, the government in the past. I don't know. I I have a hard time buying into that being the reason, though. I guess it's possible, and it's all conjecture. But if I had to make my guess, instead, what I would say is that you've got a new government in charge in China. You know, they we covered that on the podcast right. back when the new government was quote unquote elected. The new Politburo, the new Communist Party representatives in China. And these are investments that were essentially initiated by the previous regime. And we had hypothesized then that we, we didn't know what the new regime's um, focus was going to be on science, engineering, and, and by extension, high-performance computing. We hadn't seen a signal yet of what that was going to look like, particularly because the new Politburo was predominantly concerned with economic development and the and the creation of a sustainable Chinese middle class. What we could be seeing here is some essentially directed propaganda against the previous regime's method of investment. If, if they want to decrease their investment in supercomputing going forward, a nice first step might be to show that previous investments were not doing what we thought they might. Yeah, that's a possible explanation. Although I would, I would submit that even that sort of criticism uh, 20 years ago was not being made public. Just to look, even to look at the previous 
government and, and criticize like that. I mean, you know, just, just to veer off a little bit, even we're seeing now that there's they're actually looking into corruption in at various levels of the government in the current uh, some of the current. Uh, personnel there, and they're making that very public today. So I think, yeah, but that's actually my point: is that the new regime is being a marked difference from the previous regime. Right. As 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 political transitions go for China, this one's been pretty rocky. Yeah, but it's also been, I would I would submit, pretty pretty open. I mean, there, and I think this is part of. Uh, Public perception. They they see some of the corruption and problems in China, and they you know they want to demand a better better governance than they've seen in the past. So I think this is sort of a reaction to that. I think it's just a, a little more open. And I well, you you go think that. I'm going to keep my eye on Chinese investment and whether we think that it's going to keep going at this same level uh, going forward through the end of the decade. Because you know these are generally ten year regimes, and that has everything to do with when China is going to get to excess scale. That's true. And if, if they're using this as a way to pull back from the investment, we'll, we'll see that fairly soon because they've already put some plans on the table of when they're going to achieve you know, exascale. So if we see a sort of change in direction, we'll, well, I think we'll sort of know the reasoning behind that. All right. Uh, well, let's wrap up that one. But also this week in HPC, you pointed me, Michael, to a pretty fun story coming out of the Vancouver Sun in Canada. Yeah, a very interesting application there. I, I don't think I've heard of this before. If somebody's doing this at a very small, they're doing it at a very small level. They're using this, or they're going to use a, a supercomputer to track criminal criminal patterns in uh, actually in this province, which is British Columbia in Canada, and maybe elsewhere. But they're basically it's a big data type application. They're collecting various. Uh, streams and, and, and data, and they're going to track criminal activity in urban areas and in, in the maritime parts of, of the province as well. So we're, we're tracking the activity of known criminals and using those patterns in order to help identify other criminals, well, not similar just, to fraud detection in the insurance industry? Yeah, but not just known criminals, just patterns of, of, uh, of travel, just criminals and non-criminals. Just uh, they're, they're not tracking individuals, something they made a point of in this article from the Vancouver some, but they're tracking uh, activity around urban areas that are associated with uh, criminal activity. They're not trying to, you know, predict crime at the at the atomic level and in individual people, a la Minority Report. They're they're looking at larger trends and trying to uh, thinking they could manipulate the environment so it wouldn't become uh, an environment that was conducive to criminal activity. First of all, with regards to Minority Report, I hated that movie, and Tom Cruise still owes me seven and a half dollars. <laughs> I loved that movie, but I didn't spend seven and a half dollars. Maybe I have a, a little different uh, aspect of that. Yeah, that uh, was a stupid movie. But germane to the point here, you know, you're talking about they're not tracking individuals, or they are tracking them, but they're not providing those names. This is right. where this gets really dicey to me. We've seen NSA tracking all kinds of stuff in the U.S. Now we're talking about tracking criminal behavior here. To me, this gets right on the edge or prop, quite likely across the edge of personal privacy rights, uh, which is a, a potentially a Fourth Amendment right in the United States. It's Section 8 of the, of the Canadian Charter for, for their legal protection. And so it's different numbers, different countries. Right. But you know, there's a protection against illegal search and seizure here. Why are you tracking all of my information without a warrant? I'm not sure I like that. 
Yeah, and and the Canadians are being very careful about this. And even in the case of uh, criminal offenders, the police are not providing the names to, or will not be providing the names to the system. They're just they're just being aliased by numbers. So uh, they're being cognizant of the fact that they're they want to protect the privacy. It's not just offenders; it's it's other people as well. But even for convicted criminals, they're they're going to protect their privacy, for this application at least. Well, that's the whole point of personal rights, is they apply to everybody, right? You don't get to pick and choose. And for anyone out there who would say, well, if you're not doing anything illegal, you don't have anything to worry about, <laughs> that's the exact kind of reasoning that leads to the erosion of personal rights to begin with, that right. we're going to take away the rights and only the guilty will complain. Right. And maybe part of this is a reaction to that. They've seen, they're obviously, they're right next to the U.S. They've seen all the criticism come out of that. Uh, they've probably also watched the movie Minority Report. Um, so they are being. They all loved the movie. I can't. I can't handle that movie. <laughs> so I think yeah, they're being very careful about it. Um, but it's a very interesting application. I mean, they're trying. They are trying to do the same thing as the Minority Report. They're trying to predict the crimes before they occur in certain cases, and certainly they're trying to predict the types of environments that lead to criminal activity, so that presumably. They can they can manipulate or change you know urban planning or travel or traffic such that it, it doesn't uh, lead to to a greater increase in crime. Well, I, that all sounds well and good, uh, and you know I'm for it, and I think it's a really interesting application of HPC. But anytime we're talking about a government agency that's tracking the movements of individuals, I, I just get worried about whether that constitutes unreasonable search and seizure. You know, another interesting aspect of this is it's not just urban crime they're looking at here. They're actually looking at maritime crime. And one of the things they're looking at is how climate change in sort of northern Canada is, is going to affect maritime security there. There's, you know, maritime crime is a big thing. You don't read about it a lot, but there's, there's, you know, there's pirating, there's criminal activity going on in the seas. So the fact that the ice is now melting in a lot of the, the North Passage in Canada is causing a lot more... Uh, a lot more um, shipping to be done there, and, and the shortening r routes from shipping from like Asia to to Europe and things like that. So part of this is to get a track sort of the change in in the effects of climate and the, how that filters down into criminal activity and just uh, the the different uh, shipping environment in general. I, that's very cool, right? Because you're taking the, the data from different kinds of HPC application areas and then mapping them into new ones. It's the kind of grand challenge problem that we talk about. It's right. similar to the idea of multi-physics codes, where you just, you're taking now a big data angle to it and saying, can I combine this simulation with that simulation in order to predict something new? You're right. These are absolutely changing traffic patterns. Uh, as, as there's less ice up there, it's it's easy to go around continents to the north in certain seasons, and it makes it a, a lot shorter to fly to uh, to drive your your ship that way. Yeah, they don't talk much about uh, the software that's going to be used for this, nor do they talk about the hardware. So it's probably not a very big system. They do say it's going to be funded by a couple of groups in British Columbia to the tune of five hundred thousand um, dollars. Whether that's Canadian or U.S., that's not going to be a petaflop system or anything, but it's it could be a fair size system. So I'm not going to use a real big supercomputer, and it's probably a, uh, you know, a modest-sized one, but enough to do what, what they have in mind, enough to presumably handle the data feeds that, they, that they're looking at. 
Well, I appreciate you pointing me to that uh, that story in the Vancouver Sun. I think it's a very cool application there at Simon Fraser, and uh, and one that I'm sure we'll see more of. Uh, just want someone to ask the legal question. That's all. I'm not a lawyer, so I'll bow out <laughs> as long as someone's looking at it. <laughs> okay, excellent. Yeah, hopefully we'll look for more more applications like that. And yeah, as as they actually ramp up, maybe they'll have some uh, some data to play with as well. Fantastic. All right. Thanks a lot, Michael. I appreciate it. It's good talking to you as always. And thanks to our listeners as well. You've been listening to This Week in HPC. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing, distributed by Inside HPC, news without noise for the high-performance computing professional. For more information, visit intersect360.com and insidehpc.com.